Well, I'm pretty sure you've recognized by now that this is a time where a lot of gifts are given and gifts are received. It seems like it's Christmas and birthdays where gifts are kind of the thing. So I want you to think for a minute, what is a memorable gift that you've received? Sometime for Christmas or birthday, a memorable gift. It doesn't have to be a fun or a good gift. It could be like, I can't believe I got that. But what's, what's a gift you'll never forget or a memorable gift that you've received? And then find someone around you real quickly and tell them what's a gift that you'll never forget or a gift you remember receiving that was meaningful to you. Turn and tell somebody around you. Go. And if you're, if you're kind of getting rolling and telling a longer story, uh, hit the pause button and uh, pick that up after the service. After the service, finish that story. If it's somebody you don't know, share that story after the service. And get, to know, get to know one of your neighbors a little bit better. For me, what came to my mind when I thought about that was my 40th birthday. My wife said to me, here's your gift. I am cooking you Mexican food every day for the next week. And I love Mexican food. And she invited friends over for each of those meals. So we had like a little personal friend party every day for seven days, and great homemade salsa, tacos, guacamole. <sighs> okay, I'm back. I'm back. But you know, you know how memories work. You can just, I mean, I can, for a whole, that, that was a, a great gift. And as I began thinking about that Christmas and how you have Christmas gifts and you have birthday gifts, I started thinking about, it'd be kind of hard to be born on Christmas because then people try to get away with going, well, this is your Christmas and birthday gift all in one. Right? I don't know if that, anybody here born on Christmas Day? There was one in the first service, one in the second service. I don't see, I know somebody born on Christmas Day, actually, Jesus. And you do too, hopefully, right? Jesus was born on Christmas Day and, and Jesus got some gifts. And they were kind of unique gifts, right? And, and so two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan talked about how these, these, these three gifts are, it doesn't say in the Bible each one represents this, but when you read the, all of the scope of the Old and New Testament and who Jesus was, you can begin, begin to see how each of these gifts is a picture, is kind of a foreshadowing or a pointing to who Jesus was. And so when he received gold, a gift for a king, for royalty, when he received frankincense, it was a gift that pointed to his divinity, that he was Emmanuel, God with us. But when Jesus was given myrrh, it's kind of unique. Uh, this, is, this is myrrh. It's, uh, that's it, right there. And myrrh came from a tree. You see a picture of the tree there in very arid areas. And the way you would get the myrrh out of the tree, and I read a couple of different commentators and scholars who were kind of explaining some of this, and one of them worded it in a very poignant way. One of them said, when you wound the tree, it bleeds. And what it bleeds is myrrh. And it says sometimes it almost looks like tears. You can see on that myrrh tree, you can see the dripping down there. They said, so when you, when you wound the tree, it bleeds. And that bleeding can look like tears. Keep that in mind when we get to the cross of Jesus. Because when he was wounded, he bled blood and grace. And he shed tears for us. And, and so, so then when you take myrrh and you break, it's real hard, it's like a resin, you break it up, it looks kind of like, like that. And so it's really, it has kind of a pungent smell, not bad, not good, just kind of different. So if you want to smell myrrh, take, look at myrrh, it'll be right here after the service. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. But 
I want you to be thinking about that because myrrh shows up three times in the gospel stories, the story of Jesus' life. And we're going to look at all, it shows up, we, we know gold, frankincense, myrrh, we know it shows up in the manger, but it also shows up when Jesus is on the cross. And it also shows up when he's being buried. And we're going to look at all three of those. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bible app or your, on your phone, if you fall on your phone, get to Matthew 2. I'm going to read a portion, then we're going to pause there, but keep your Bible open in front of you because we're going to come back and finish that passage, all right? So we're going to walk through this, this passage in, in two different parts. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I want you to notice, whenever you read the Bible, notice key words, notice things that jump out at you. Don't just read the Bible, study it, dig deep into it. I want you to notice the word king, how king shows up in this passage. If you have your own Bible and you're a highlighter or you're a note taker or underliner, you might want to circle or underline king because it's very interesting how it fits into this passage. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. All right? So notice that. Behold, wise men came from the east, uh, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born... King of the Jews. If you understand the Roman-Jewish conflict at this time in the first century, if you understand what's going on, this would be problematic. There is a king, but these wise men come and say, oh, we hear there's another king that's going to show up. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why were they troubled? What's the problem? Well, let me ask you if you know your history a little bit here. Do you know in the ancient world, generally speaking, in the ancient world, when someone was a king, and another person was going to come and maybe take over their throne or become the new king, oftentimes what the king on the throne would do to the new potential rival king, what would they often try to do to them? Anybody know? Kill them. Not give them gifts, not give them a warm welcome. It, it was a, and for the kids here, that's brutal, that's terrible, but that's the ancient world. That was what was going on in Jesus' day. And if you, if you read on through the Gospels, you see how this unfolds. We won't get into all those details today. But so, so he was troubled when he heard this, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests, the religious leaders, and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Where is he supposed to be born? Why do you think Herod wanted to know where he would be born? He's getting data. He's getting information. He wants to find this potential rival king and deal with him. All right? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, and now they quote from Micah, the prophet, written about eight centuries earlier, pointing to where the Messiah would be born. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. He wants to find out where this kid's going to be, and he wants to find out right about when the star came, when he could have been born, so he can get the right age, so he can cause some problems. All right? That's what's going on here. So hit the pause button right there. If you have your Bible open, keep it on your lap in front of you. If you your Bible app open, keep it open. We're going to come right back to that in a moment. But this is all going on, and what, what we need to understand is there's more going on than meets our eye. As we read further into this passage, we're going to find some things that someone in the first century would have gone, ooh, I kind of know where this is going, or I have a suspicion where this might be going. In the Bible and in lots of different areas, it's called, this is called foreshadowing. 
Foreshadowing is when you get a piece of information, and when you get that information, you go, ooh, I kind of know what's coming next. Now, we have that in our culture today. There's foreshadowing. And you get it. You know what I'm talking about, even though you might not know exactly how it connects with the word foreshadowing. Here's an example of foreshadowing. If I'm sitting with some kids, and I'm going to read a story, and I begin the story like this. Once upon a time. If I start that way, if you know how those kind of stories work, in your mind, you're thinking you're going to see a princess. If there's, if there's a frog in the story that I begin with once about a time, and, and the, the, the princess kisses the frog, what usually happens? How would you know that? How would you know that? Foreshadowing. Once we say once upon a time, you're like, I know where this is going. And at the end of the story, it will often end something like this. And if you, if you know, help me along. It'll, sometimes it'll end this way. And they all lived... That's creepy. How would you know that? How do you know that? Because when you start a story once upon a time, you know the kind of story it is. That's called foreshadowing. That's what's happening in our passage today. Here's another example. If you go to the movies, at the beginning of the movie, this epic music starts, and scrolling across the screen are these words, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Are you in your mind, kind of, you have a sense of what's coming next, right? And if what comes next is like cute little kittens wrestling and playing with yarn, you might go, that's cute, but time out. You threw me off here because you started with a long time. You expect Sith, you know, evil Siths, and you expect Jedi, and you expect epic space battles. If you begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you've set the tone for something. One more example. I want you to understand that foreshadowing is really a common thing. And in the, in the ancient world, it was common, but sometimes we'll read there, we'll read there once upon a time, and we don't, we're not used to it, so we don't know where it's going, right? But there's something pointing forward here. Here's one more example. Husband and wife are talking. Wife says, I got this chance to go out and do some things with my friends on Friday night, but I got, you know, the kids and stuff, and the husband goes, oh, I'll watch them. And she's like, yeah, but she knows him. And so she's a little nervous about, you know, she's like, just trust me, just go, have fun, we'll be fine. So she goes out, she has a great night, she comes back. First thing she says to her husband is this. She says, well, how did things go? And he says these words to her. What do you want to hear first? The bad news or the good news? Now, when anybody says, what do you want to hear first? The good news or the bad news? The bad news or the good news? What are they setting up for? Bad news. Nobody says that with good news in mind, right? Well, they knocked over this thing and it was broken and this is what happened. But it wasn't anyone's fault, right? But, but there's certain things that when you say them, it's a preamble. It's foreshadowing, all right? So as we continue on in this passage, as we continue on in Matthew chapter 2, there's some foreshadowing we're going to see. And here's what I always tell people. Every text has a context. Every text of the Bible has a context. Uh, in the ancient world, myrrh had meaning. We're going to get to myrrh. We looked at gold last, two weeks ago, frankincense last week, myrrh today. Myrrh had meaning. But if we don't know that meaning, we don't see the foreshadowing. We don't see where it's going. And every text has a context. Every passage you read, it has a context right where it sits in the Bible, in that book of that Bible, in the whole scripture. It has a context within history. So you've got to kind of understand what's going on. So as we read this passage, we need to get some context because we don't see the foreshadowing the way it's there. But by the time we're done today, you will. So now, again, Herod has now sent the wise men. He's asked them about, when, about where, about when. It continues on in verse 8 of Matthew 2. And he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. 
Liar, liar, pants on. Well, thank you for helping out. This is a participation Sunday, all right? No, that's, he didn't want to go worship him. He's lying. We know what's going on here. So it continues. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced and exceed, exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary as mother. And watch this now. And they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't just honor him as a king. They worshipped him. Amazing. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, we know if you keep reading the Gospels that Herod still is a mess. It's, 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 and that's, another, that's another sermon. But Herod still went about trying to do all he could to get rid of this potential upcoming king. But when, when, the, when the wise men came, they brought interesting gifts. Gold. That guy can work with that one. Frankincense. All right. Myrrh. Embalming material. Embalming material. When someone died in the ancient world, one of those common things that myrrh was used for with myrrh and aloes and spices, they would put it around as they wrapped someone's body up, they would use myrrh. Who gives a newborn baby embalming materials? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Last night, late last night, um, my little brother Jason, my only brother, he, had, he and his wife Mindy have six kids. Their firstborn, Clara, got married. I got to do her wedding a couple years ago. She just delivered her firstborn child late last night, early this morning. Just got pictures this morning when I woke up. Very excited for that. And so I want you to imagine I go to meet this newborn child, and I bring a gift. Say, I brought this, you know, Jason and Mindy, I brought this for your newborn baby. And they open it up, and here's what's in this little box. Handcuffs and a harmonica. They say, why... What? What? Explain, please. And I said, well, I just had this feeling your kids are going to spend a lot of time in jail. Uh, harmonica, you just teach them to sing songs like, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody but my Jesus. You know, just get them ready, because I just got a feeling. It's like, that's creepy. Who would do that? Who gives myrrh, embalming materials, to a newborn baby? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Unless that baby is the king of kings. Unless that baby is God with us. And unless that baby was born to die and to bear our sins. Unless there's a foreshadowing at his birth that he came on a mission and that mission would end up with his sacrificial death then it starts to make sense. We might miss that because we didn't live in that culture. But don't miss it as we go forward. Lord Jesus, we pause right now as we open your word, as we dig into your scriptures, as we think together about what you've done for us and the meaning of myrrh in your story. And we ask you'll speak to us and you'll teach us, Lord, that we will love you more, we'll encounter you and experience you more profoundly and deeply in some way today and through this Christmas season. Speak to us and meet us in this time. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. In the manger, the myrrh gives us this picture that the one born in the manger is the savior of the world. 
He came to die for us. He came to lay his life down. He came to sacrifice himself. And we need to see that. We need to understand that. Look at Matthew 2, 8 through 12. He he has clearly come to uh, offer his life. You know, and and so, so Herod has lied, and now Jesus has been born, and we're walking, we're walking through his life. And so uh, we, we also see a, a picture of who this Jesus is by his very name, all right? The name Jesus, the name Jesus means God is salvation. God is salvation. That's his name. There's a couple of iterations through history. You have, you have Hoshua, Hoshua, and then Joshua, and then Jesus, same name. Joshua, Joshua, Jesus. Iterations of the same name through time. God is salvation. That's his name. That's who he is. So when you think about myrrh, and when you think about the manger, here's a great theological word for you, incarnation. Think about the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of God among us, his incarnation, his coming. The king has come among us. And the myrrh gives us a picture of how this king, how the savior will one day die for us. So here's my question for you this morning. Do you recognize this baby as the only one who can save lost and broken people? Do you realize that the baby born in the manger isn't just a decoration for a nativity? Isn't just a cute little picture of a baby? But this one born in the manger came to save lost people and he's the only one who can do it. I love nativity scenes, but here's the problem with the nativity scene. If you have it up in your living room or in your dining room or in your entry to your house in June... It looks kind of weird. At some point, everyone takes their nativity scene and they pack it up and they take the little baby Jesus and they kind of wrap the baby Jesus up, they put him in a box and they put him in a closet somewhere. You can't wrap up the real Jesus. You can't tuck him away. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And he is the savior who offered his life. And so in the manger, we see incarnation that God Almighty came among us as one of us. And we've got to recognize that and see that. Let's move to the next time we find myrrh in the Gospels. And we, we learn here that the, the one bleeding on the cross was not dying for his own sins or wrongs. The next time we see myrrh, Jesus is hanging on the cross. But he's not dying for his sins. In the Roman world, they would execute people for their crimes. Jesus committed no crime. He committed no sins. So look with me at Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Now 33 years have gone by since Jesus was born. Now Jesus is carrying the cross beam of the cross up the hill towards Golgotha. And we read this in verse 21 of Mark 15. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, watch this closely, and again, we don't understand how myrrh worked, and so we've got to kind of get the background to see the foreshadowing here. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. We're going to come right back to that in a minute, but let's finish the passage. And they crucified him. They nailed him to the cross, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. There's that word king again. They were mocking. They didn't believe he was the king of the Jews. They're saying, a king? Stripped naked and beaten? A king? 
A king breathing his last breath, that's a king? That's your king? They're mocking. Well, they didn't understand that in their mocking, they were actually declaring the truth. He was not only the king of the Jews, he was the king of all who would receive him. He's the king of the universe. But they put the sign over him, the king of the Jews. Look at verse 23. What's going on here? And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. And he said, no, thank you. I don't want it. In the ancient world, they believed that with wine and myrrh mixed together, when you would take it, when you would, when you would take it into your body, it would have a numbing effect. It would soften the pain. It would take the edge off the pain. And somebody was trying to show him mercy. And he said, no. Why? Why would he refuse something that would take the edge off the pain that he was experiencing and he would continue to experience for hours? Why? See, if it was you, if it was me, and we were going through excruciating pain, and we could avoid it by taking something, it's like, give me some thank you and may I have another. Right? I mean, who wouldn't? Why would Jesus say no to something that was meant to alleviate his pain? And here's the answer. He said no to myrrh on the cross because he wanted every sense alive and he wanted to feel every pain and every sorrow and the weight of our sin completely and totally because he was dying in our place for our sins. The myrrh that he rejected on the cross, the theological word you want to lock into your mind is this, substitution. Substitution. He was dying in our place for our sins, bearing the pain. And he refused to have anything take that pain away. He felt the full emotional pain, physical pain, spiritual pain, all of that that I would have felt or you would have felt. Some years ago, when I was a youth pastor, this young girl, Trisha, Trisha grew up in a non-believing home. She didn't grow up around the Bible at all. She had become a Christian. She had come to meet and know and love Jesus, kind of like some of the young people you saw on the video today. She just fell in love with Jesus. She was growing in her faith, starting to read her Bible. She came to me one day, and I, I knew in her heart the hardest thing about the Christian faith for her was the idea that Jesus had to suffer for her. It broke her heart that Jesus would take her pain. So she came to me one day, and she said, Pastor Kevin, I was thinking about Jesus dying on the cross, and I think I figured something out. When a junior high kid comes to, to, and tells you they've been reading their Bible, and they figure something out, you listen. You go, I want to hear what they're thinking, right? And I think that's maybe some, in, some insight from this young girl. And here's what she said to me. She said, she said to me, Jesus was God, right? I said, yeah, he was God. She said, so here's what I think he did. I think because he was God, he made it so he wouldn't feel any pain at all. Then he could go through all that and it wouldn't hurt. So what do you say? I had to tell her the truth. I looked right into her little junior high eyes. And I said, Trisha, I said, you have to understand that Jesus felt everything you would have felt if they put the nails through you, if they put you on a cross, if they beat you, he felt everything you would have felt. And he also felt all the shame you would have felt, and he felt all the embarrassment you would have felt. And I said, he also felt all the punishment you would have felt if you paid for your sins. He felt it all, and all of mine, and all of yours, and yours, and yours, and yours. I had to tell her the truth, and her eyes just welled up with tears. But she got it. I said, Tricia, Jesus would not let anything numb his pain because it was your pain and he was taking it. Substitution. It would have been cheating. 
to make the pain go away. He bore our sins. He took our shame. He took our punishment. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. So here's a a theological question for you. Do you know whose sins put Jesus on the cross? Whose sins put Jesus on the cross? Who's wrong? Who ultimately, who put Jesus on the cross? There's all kinds of theories. Some people will say the Romans. I mean, they're the ones that nailed him to the cross. Even though the Jews knew they couldn't do a crucifixion legally, but they could appeal to the Romans, and the Romans would do it on their behalf. Somebody said, well, the Romans were the ones who put him through this mock trial. The Romans were the ones who nailed him. So the Romans put Jesus on the cross, and they bear the brunt of it. Well, is that true? Partially. They bore some of the responsibility, but not ultimately. It was not ultimately the Romans. Some people say, well, it was the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, these people that put them through these false trials that brought mock witnesses in. It was the Jewish leaders. They're the ones that put Jesus on the cross because they you know, kind of set all the stuff up against him, so they bear the weight of that. Is that the answer? Partially, but not ultimately. Wasn't, if it wasn't the Romans, if it wasn't the Jewish leaders, here's what some people will say. It's my sin. My sin put Jesus on the cross. Well, is it true that Jesus died for our sins? Yes. But did our sins put Jesus on the cross? In, in, in one sense, yes, but ultimately, again, I'm going to say no. You see, the Romans didn't have power to put Jesus on the cross. He was God in human flesh. The Jews didn't have power to put Jesus on the cross. You and I don't have power to put Jesus on the cross. Only one has the power to do that, and it's Jesus himself. Jesus chose to go to the cross, to not let the pain be numbed, to feel everything so he could die in our place for our sins and be the substitute to pay the price for our shame and our judgment. It was Jesus' choice. Listen to these words from John chapter 10. If you're, if, you're, if you're going, I don't know how to process that entirely. Listen to Jesus' words in John 10 when he says this. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father. Now listen closely. This is verse 15 of John 10. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus, I lay my life down for my sheep. It's my choice. He goes on in verse 17. Jesus still speaking. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. That's the death of Jesus. That's the resurrection. And he had power over all of it. Only to raise it up again. Verse 18. And this, now if, you're, if you don't have it yet, he's gonna be really crystal clear. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus chose to go to the cross knowing the only way to pay for our sins was his substitution. And when they offered him something that would numb the pain and soften his senses, he said, no. I need to feel it all like you would have because I'm doing it for you. Do you understand that? Do you see that? And so, in the manger, incarnation, God is coming among us. He's coming to die. On the cross, substitution. He's dying in our place. And, and the scriptures are filled with, with reminders of what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Just listen to these words. It says, God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gift of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, you have been healed. And Peter actually quotes Isaiah 53. So now think back to Isaiah 53, centuries before the Messiah came. Isaiah prophesies these words of the coming Messiah, of Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus took your place. He bore your sins. And he would not let anything numb a single ounce of the pain or the sorrow because he did it as if he were you. Somebody say, praise God. Let's try that again. Somebody say, praise God. He is good. And so then, the final time we see Myrrh show up, we look in John chapter 19. Now we see that the one who stopped breathing, the one whose heart ceased from beating, was not going to stay in the grave. Now we're going to see Jesus. He's in the grave. And see, we're on the other side of the death of Jesus. We're on the other side of the resurrection. We know how the story ends. But we're going to see that, that when he's in the grave, when they're going to bury him, Myrrh is there again. John 19, beginning in verse 38. After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot of myrrh and aloes. But they wrapped the body in myrrh, and aloes and linen cloths around him. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. If we don't know that, we don't see the foreshadowing back in, in, the, in the manger when Jesus is born, right? But they knew that in this time. This was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where it was, he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They lead him there. And Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, no breath in his lungs, no heartbeat. For three days, he was dead. And on the third day, he rose again. Someone say amen. amen. Much better for the first try. Well done. Yeah, pra praise God. And so here's my final question for you today. Have you encountered the risen and victorious Lord Jesus Christ? Have you encountered this Jesus, born in the manger, died on the cross, died and was buried, and rose again in glory? Have you encountered Jesus Christ? I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, do you read your Bible? I'm not asking, do you give offering? By the way, I'm a pastor. All those things are good to do. Do all those things. But that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, have you encountered the risen Jesus Christ? Have you seen his face? Have you seen his glory? Because he is alive today, even as he was then. And he's present, and he's powerful, and he's glorious. Have you met him? Have you walked with him? 
In the manger, there's myrrh pointing ahead. It's the incarnation, God with us. The only one who could pay the full price for our sin against holy God is God himself. Incarnation. On the cross, substitution. He took our place. He bore our shame and took our pain and took our penalty. In the tomb and in the garden tomb and the resurrection, surrender. He surrendered his life for our sake and now we surrender our lives to follow him. We walk with him, we love him, we live for him. And so the one who came is Savior. The real question is, have you received him as your Savior? See, the gold can point us to Jesus being king. But here's the question, is he your king? Is he your sovereign? Do you bow down? Do you follow him? It's one thing to say Jesus is king. It's another thing to say he's my king. I hope this Christmas you can declare he is the king of kings in my life. The frankincense reminds us that he is God, the divine one. You can say Jesus is God, or you can say like Thomas after Jesus rose, my Lord and my God. You can worship him as God. The myrrh reminds us that he is savior. And you can say Jesus is the savior, or you can say He is my Savior, my King, my God. This Christmas season, dwell on that. Think about it. Do you believe it? Do you declare it? Do you experience it? Lord Jesus, this is our prayer. As we've thought together about these gifts fit for a king, as we've thought about how you, Jesus, came, God, with us, how you died in our place for our sins, the perfect substitution, how you rose again in glory, and how we are called to just surrender day by day and moment by moment to your leading. Jesus, meet with us. I pray this Christmas season over these next seven and eight days for every person online, every person on campus listening today, that they will dwell on who you are, not just as king, but their king, not just as God, but their God, not just as savior, but their savior. Help us to worship you and celebrate you this Christmas season. That we would enjoy the gifts that we share with each other. But most of all, we would enjoy the gift that you've given of yourself. And just keeping your heart in a place of worship, I actually asked if we could close with this last song. Um, I know not everyone here knows it, uh, but if you don't know it, just listen to the words. Um, Just keeping your heart in a place of worship, I want to ask you to stand with me, just still being very worshipful. If you know the song, sing along. It's about the kingship of Jesus, about worshiping him as king. If you don't know it, by the time it's done, you'll start getting on, catching on. Jump in and make this your declaration. Make this your worship.